At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And I'm Elena. As real estate agents, moms, and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, ladies, we are back with another Crime Estate podcast. Hey, so good to see y'all. Good to see you, Heather, and so good to see our producer, Melanie. How's everyone doing? Great. We are, uh, yeah, we're surviving the holiday rush. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's the beauty of the holidays. Yeah, it sounds good. Well, you know, today we're going to be in Savannah, Georgia, and you know what that means. We can really lean into our Southern accents. (laughs) I love that. Definitely. love that. Yes, definitely being a Kentucky girl, you have a Southern accent. And I have a draw, I try to tamp it down, which is why I think I talk so fast, is to try to not have that accent. But I don't hear it a lot from you, Melanie. Well, I mean, I grew up overseas until I mm. was about nine years old, and my family isn't from Texas, so I think okay, that well, my, it. yeah, my accent might be a little bit of all over the place. But I love Savannah, so this is going to be fun, exciting. Okay, so you ready? Yeah, okay, yeah, let's yeah. do it. All right, so we're going to step back into the 1800s to the beginning of the story of the Mercer House. Ground broke for the construction of 429 Bull Street in 1860. General Hugh Whedon Mercer enlisted the help of famed architect John S. Norris to build the house. Norris, who had made a name for himself, had built homes, churches, and lighthouses in the Northeast. His standard design was a mix of Greek and Italianate architecture, but with the Mercer house, he threw in a dash of Renaissance revival for good measure. It sounds like a hodgepodge, but think ornate, rectangular, tall, arched windows from the Italianate influence— Columns, bold moldings, and eaves and cornices, or horizontal decorative molding from the Greek influence, and finally, a symmetrical facade with a masonry or stonework exterior lent from the Renaissance revival. Okay, that is a lot. He could not pick a lane, but I love it. So I'm sort of picturing like a Gothic influence, the arches, the asymmetry, the ornateness of it. Does that sound right? Yes. Um, From what I can tell, all of these architecture styles had a Gothic-like influence, though this seems to be much more streamlined than traditional Gothic. Okay, cool. Yeah. Do we have pictures up on our website? Yep. yep, Absolutely. So the Mercer house had 15 foot ceilings and Norris incorporated floor length windows. Unfortunately, the Civil War halted construction of 429 Bull Street. The home sat unfinished until around 1868 when General Mercer moved to Baltimore and sold the home to John Wilder. You know, we spoke about homes used to have the names mostly named after the family who inhabited the home, but because of the Civil War and because General Hugh Whedon Mercer had to abandon what was going to be his dream home, no member of the Mercer family ever lived at Mercer House. That's interesting. You would assume that if it was named the Mercer House this many years later, Mm -hmm. that, you know, he lived there at one point in time. Yep. Poor guy never lived there. So in 1869, Wilder took on the task of completing the home, even hiring John Norris's assistant who completed the house with the original plans. Upon completion, the three-story red brick, 7,000-square-foot behemoth took up an entire city block, boasted 48 windows, eight balconies, and a carriage house, and it also had an iron fence surrounding three sides. A red brick wall enclosed the home on the fourth side. Sadly, though, Wilder didn't get to enjoy the home for very long. He died 10 years after the construction was completed. After his death, the home changed hands many times, including the purchase in 1921 to the Ali Temple, an ancient Arabic order nobles of the Mystic Shrine, for $45,000. 
Wait, Ooh. so like the Shriners, the guys with the white hats at the parade, the good guys, the ones that do lots of work for yep, children, not the bad guys. white hats? Correct. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, the tall red hats, those guys. So it's not known a lot about the owners after Wilder and the Shriners own the home. What we do know, though, is that it sat vacant and neglected for some time. Oh, that's such a sad thing. I hate to see, like, really any home sit vacant and neglected, but definitely these beautiful old homes. That's that's too bad. I know. It's really sad. And we see that a lot in, in our line of business, just kind of homes that have been neglected, not cared for, and, and really old homes. That is really sad. Yeah. So it is in vacant and abandoned homes that bad things sometimes can happen. And that brings us to our first documented death at Mercer House. In 1969, 11-year-old Tommy Downs was doing what most boys do, playing and messing around when he found himself atop the roof of 429 Bull Street. An avid bird watcher, it is assumed that he was chasing the birds when he stumbled and fell, impaling himself on the iron fence that surrounded the home. Tragically, Tommy died when the iron spikes pierced his head. Um, that's heartbreaking. I know. It's really sad. I had an uncle fall off a barn roof one time. Did he die? Nobody lost an eye. Oh, gosh. That's bad, yeah. too. Yeah, probably like right around the same year. Like, Oh, interesting. Apparently, kids got on roofs more back in the 50s and 60s. I would have a heart attack now. if either of my kids got on the roof. Yeah. Yeah, I might have gone on a few roofs back <laughs> in my day. <laughs> So shortly after the death of Tommy Downs, the home was purchased for $55,000 and restored by well-known antiques dealer, Jim Williams. Jim was an early investor and restorationist of homes in Savannah. His passion was restoring those forgotten and neglected homes of old Savannah and breathing new life into a once forgotten time. It's been said that without his influence, Savannah as we know it would not have been. After a two-year restoration, Jim moved into what will now be known as the Mercer Williams House. It's now the early 1970s, and Jim Williams and the Mercer Williams House is a sight to behold. And in true Southern socialite fashion, not only was Jim known as a home and antique preservationist, he is known for his decadent and extravagant parties. The parties were a who's who of Savannah society. It was an honor to be invited to a party at the Mercer Williams House, especially noted were the Christmas parties. Guests of the party went would not only be surrounded by elite Savannah society, but would be able to party amongst Jim's treasures and rare antiques. Among these prized possessions, a piece of the state carriage used at the coronation of Napoleon and a pair of $10,000 crystal candlesticks that are a gift from George and Martha Washington to their daughter on her wedding day. An organ was also installed in the home, which lent an air of the macabre, especially when stories of the home being built atop of unmarked graves of Savannah residents who died of typhoid fever in the 1800s. It's sort of creepy. I know, but but kind of cool, but creepy. <laughs> okay. You I would to, never I, live in a house built on top of a graveyard. <laughs> no, I, I mean, we don't even have to get to I the definitely end for wouldn't. me to comment on that. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. So it was at one of these parties that Jim Williams met Danny Hansford. Danny Hansford was described by the Washington Examiner as a, quote, redneck hustler. <laughs> he was Savannah's most popular escort. His clients included both males and females, and it was said that his trademark outfit, jeans and a white shirt, were alluring to many. Does that do it for you, <laughs> jeans and a white shirt? That's, it didn't take a lot in the late 70s, I guess. I, I guess. Um, okay. Yeah. So Jim Williams was one of these people who found that alluring, and he hired Danny to work with him, restoring antiques in the carriage house of the Mercer Williams house. This marked the beginning of their two-year volatile secret relationship between the two men. Okay, so 
I've lost count. What decade are we in? Like 70s, 80s? Yes. Late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Yeah. So that explains maybe why this was a secret relationship. Yes. I know it's kind of sad to think about. But it's also Savannah. True. Very true. It's sad to think about that even in in our lifetime, you couldn't like come out with those kinds of things and, and have a relationship out in the open like that. If I am imagining these parties accurately, there were probably a lot of secret things happening amongst the people at these parties. I mean, the 70s were pretty notorious for some amazing parties. Yeah, I think so. That's I didn't see any like reports uh, just yet on exactly what happened. I kind of want to dig in more to see like, I, I kind of get the feeling that there's some some wild stuff happening at these parties. Oh, yeah. I mean, and this house was on a very famous historic square in Savannah. Um, I know I've been outside of it beforehand. And I remember one of the stories that they still talk about on Wikipedia to this day, that in like 1979, they were filming a movie on Monterey Square um, where this house is. And that Williams, you know, at the time, the antique old uh, owner of the house, he actually hung, and I kid you not, a Nazi Germany flag outside the windows of the Mercer house in an attempt to disrupt the shoot um, because the film society declined to make a donation to the local humane society that he had requested it. So, you know, so he basically said, make a donation. They said, no, okay, I'm going to put a Nazi flag outside my window. Right. Um, So it wasn't so much that he like was supporting the Nazis. It was like, you will not film in front of my house unless you make this donation. Meanwhile, there is a beautiful Jewish congregation, um, Israel, right across the street from uh, from this. I mean, this is a very interesting historic mm-hmm. neighborhood. Uh, have either of you been to Savannah? No. I think we need to make it the uh, first stop on our Crime uh, Estate tour. I've only been one time, and I went for a, a, a girlfriend's bachelorette party, and it was actually a lovely place because we were able to do, like, we would do history tours. We did house tours in the daytime. Um, we'd go to good food, and then we went to the pubs at nighttime. Nice. So it was a win-win for, you know, everybody. Um but one of my favorite things I learned about, and I just have to sh- yeah. show you to lovers of old homes, uh, is uh, pineapples. So did you mm-hmm. know, like, the whole idea of a pineapple is supposed to have been a welcoming? Because the idea that in this time period, the the big shipment, you know, the ship captains, they would go on these long months and months long trips. And so a pineapple was the symbol of hospitality. And it was like very wealthy because you had to you know bring them back mm. from like South America or Hawaii. And so the idea was that if you went to go visit someone's house, like in, in this antebellum time period, and they would put like a pineapple in your room because that was the symbol of richness and hospitality. Um, but if you woke up the next morning and the 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 pineapple was no longer there it basically meant your 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 trip is over you need to leave well because you know if you think about it like you you would go you would go stay a month like i know heather you just had uh visitors here for the week well okay week is one thing if they were here for you know month six weeks you might be saying okay this pineapple pineapple. is gone (laughs) it's time for you to leave so but yes when you're going around savannah you see pineapples everywhere from the doormats to on the uh, uh, wrought iron fences outside people's houses door knockers yeah exactly um, the door knockers yeah the tops of a door will have like the metal pineapple in them yeah Yeah. so i like that but i like the idea that it's a symbol of hospitality yeah yeah it kind of makes me want to put one in my house and then that way the kids and, and my husband know when to leave me alone. <laughs> like if the pineapple's gone, just leave me alone. Just that's so, it. 
I had that rule with my son when we were little, not with the pineapple, <laughs> but you know, I work from home a lot and my husband was working from home. I think this was like very the beginning of COVID. And so the rule was if the lamp on my desk is on, I'm focused mm. and you can't interrupt unless you're like bleeding or vomiting mm-hmm. or the house is on fire. But if the lamp's off, I'm not focused. Just come up yeah. whenever. Right. No, I like I mean, that. It's very true. But That's you know, good. Especially for all mm. of us who work at home to some extent of our jobs, uh, there's a fine line between work hours and personal mm-hmm. hours. And yeah. the kids don't always understand that. No. no. It's all blurred. No. You're right. All right, so we're in Savannah. Okay, so in Savannah, and let's jump ahead to the end of this tumultuous affair with Jim and Danny. On the morning of May 2nd, 1981, Danny Hansford was killed by his employer and lover, Jim Williams, at the age of 21. At the time of the murder, Jim was 50, and he never denied that he killed Danny. Jim's story, though, was that Danny, in a fit over something, pushed over an 18th century grandfather clock, a treasured possession of Jim's. Jim further claimed that Hansford entered the study where he was and pointed a gun at him, attempting to fire him, but the gun jammed. According to Jim, now that Danny's intentions had been made clear, he had no choice but to pull his own gun from his desk and shoot Danny, killing him in self-defense. Approximately 30 minutes after the killing, Jim phoned for help. When police arrived, he said, I shot him. He's in the other room. Within hours, Jim was arrested for the murder and taken into custody. However, as we have seen Many times, money talks, and he was able to post a $25,000 bond shortly after his arrest. So two weeks after the initial arrest, Jim was indicted on murder charges, and this would set off a chain of four trials on the murder of Danny. The first trial resulted in a sentence of life in prison for Jim, but after an appeal regarding contradictory details in the police report, the verdict was overturned, pending a second trial. In 1983, the second trial, Jim was found guilty once again, but again, the verdict was overturned, this time due to technicalities of the testimonies presented at trial. The third trial in 1987 was declared a mistrial due to a hung jury, and in 1989, Williams was finally acquitted. And in dramatic fashion, Jim Williams would only live another eight months in freedom. Jim died in Mercer Williams' house, dying suddenly of a stroke in the exact spot that he had killed Danny. An investigator who worked both cases noted the similarities of the position of both bodies, stating that you couldn't have posed the bodies better. Shortly after Jim's death, the book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, detailing the life Jim and Mercer Williams' house, was published. The book was later turned into a movie starring Kevin Spacey and directed by Clint Eastwood. A few things I want to note. Some people blame Jim's lawyer in the second trial for his being convicted because he encouraged Jim to fully explain the exact nature of his relationship with Danny. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Well, and as we have heard from our recent fascination with the Murdaugh murders trial, <laughs> taking the stand is usually mm-hmm. not a good idea mm-hmm. in your own defense. So Right. Yeah. And this is fascinating. It's reported that Jim hired a voodoo priestess to cleanse the home after the death of Danny. And when she told him that he must ask Danny for forgiveness, he refused. And it was a short time after this that Jim died. I'm going to have to go back on because I remember <clears throat> reading this book when oh. it first came out. Oh, yeah. And it, um, when we did a kind of like a home tour, a haunted home no. tour uh, of Savannah, it, it was definitely spoken a lot about. And uh, definitely I saw the movie. And, and John Cusack is um, one of the leads of the movie. Okay. You know, yeah. the 80s fan in me always loves a good Cusack yeah. movie. Um, and Jude Law was in it as well. So 
definitely uh, something to go check out if you haven't seen the the movie or read the book before. I haven't done either one. Yeah, I want to read the book, but I read that the movie wasn't very good. I liked it. I mean, you know, I'm, you're a movie buff, though. Yeah, like. I, but I mean, but I, I I have a soft spot a spot in my heart for any thri- thriller thriller mm-hmm. crime movie, and you know, anything in uh, Savannah is beautiful. So the book was excellent, um, and it was a New York Times bestseller for a very long run. Yeah. So I mean, I definitely would recommend the book. But if you're looking for something that you could sit there and watch with your husband, and you know. Um, I, I liked the movie. I'm yeah. going to have to go back and rewatch it with yeah. uh, my modern eyes. Yeah. So the, the house is like supposedly haunted by <laughs> sure. multiple people. Well, and it's buried on a graveyard. It's buried on a graveyard, supposedly. Yeah. So there's a lot going on um, in that house, but it's now a museum run by William's sister. Apparently she tried to put it on the market to sell and for whatever reason decided to not go through with any sale and opened a museum out of it. So so is the museum like an antiques museum or is it a here's where my brother killed somebody no, museum? No, I, I think it's more of a Savannah history oh, okay. museum. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Well, we'll check it out on our Savannah tour. Yeah, it, it looks beautiful. Just like, like I want to go to Savannah, especially now after seeing some of the pictures and then the, you know, the, the mossy trees and the, the then about the voodoo. Pre- I mean, there's just a lot. There's a lot going on over there. I want to. Are check you going to have to take your holy water? With oh you? yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, for sure. So would y'all um, buy it, sell it, list it? I think I would do all of them. Yeah. I, I you know like the crime of it sounds like it was maybe a crime of passion mm-hmm. on the original murder. Um, if I knew for a fact it was buried on a graveyard, that might mm, bother me. Okay. Not because of like the spirits, but because it seems disrespectful. Mm, okay. Yeah. So if that were true, that might change my mind. Right. But I feel like that could be folklore. It could be. Um, so assuming that's not the fact, I would, yes, I would live there. I would buy it. I would live in it. I would definitely list it. Yeah. I think there's something about an old home that maybe many people have died in that sort of sadly negates and I, I know if this was a family member, I, I fully acknowledge that this seems crass. But like the idea, if it's a really old home, that there's lots of things that have occurred over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, one crime, quote unquote, you know, doesn't seem quite as bad as maybe some of the other homes that we've spoken about that might have been a more of a new build where it was one of the only people that lives lives there. I don't know. It's, I, I may be just uh, justifying it in my brain. I think you're just being practical. You know, you're yeah, saying you like if practical. this house was built in 1860, the chances that dead people have been in and out of here without us knowing about it are pretty. I mean, it's very much like what Adrian said in the Poly Class House, right? Like this was a home of working people, you know, from the early 1800s, mm-hmm. number of people that died of natural causes in this home or, you know, had typhoid or the flu or, you know, that was just a, a more of a part of our society in that time than it is now. Mm-hmm. We don't lay people out in our front foyers anymore, mm-hmm. but that was very normal for hundreds of years. Yeah, you're right. No, it's it, fascinating. It It's something that, you know, you, you know the province of your house and you know where it came from and, and, and you know what's gone on beforehand. But like, you know, reality is that most people don't necessarily have that ability to know it. And it's not a bad thing. It just should mean that, over a lifetime of a longer, you know, house that there's been good and happy and weddings and funerals and birthdays and everything in between that have occurred. Mm-hmm. Not a bad thing, but it is life. Yeah. Well, I personally think that a Danny had something to do with <laughs> William's death, but only because he died right there in the study where oh. his body. Well, were- that quote from the investigator yes. it was like, you could not have posed them right. more similarly. That's 
Okay, that's, that's weird. Creepy. That's creepy. It is creepy. Yeah. So, yep. Maybe he was so dramatic Ooh. and had such a flair <laughs> for the that. art that he knew he was dying. <gasps> and he's like, this will be my final show. I love piece. that. Oh my gosh. I hope that's what happened. I, I actually I actually kind of appreciate the fact because he had um uh restored over fifty homes in Savannah and he was into the antiques. I mean, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like he probably had a vibe that I he had it. a little bit of fun in him. I love that. Well, if you're listening in Savannah and you have any details on the parties that went on. <laughs> I really want to know. Really know. Yeah. Yeah. We have great merch now. So yeah. like, send us some details and we can send you a coffee cup or something. I love First it. First person to to give us the scoop. Yes. Yes. I love it. Thank you for letting me tell the story. Yeah. I'm excited. Do you know what you're doing next week? Uh, next time? Uh, if you had not have asked me, I would tell you. Okay. But I can't remember now. Okay. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured crime estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.